0: Namaste. Welcome, my friends. So I'm glad you're joining us for part two of an interview with the beloved poet, teacher, Zen practitioner, Jane Hirshfield. I found our time together in this interview so deeply moving, uh, listening to her read several poems and exploring ways that they really come alive in our lives. So I hope that you'll Enjoy and Feel Touched, Inspired As I Have by Jane, the poetry, and our conversation. Okay, blessings. Your poems, Jane, um, you know, there's a lot of conceptual stuff in Buddhism, you know, about no self and interdependence. Your poems have um, a transmission that actually you experience what has often been conceptual. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, that you've got so many poems, but I, I almost wanted to invite you to move into another poem right now, read another poem. Um, I'm thinking of my proteins right now because it just like reading it just went beyond my mind into the realness of interdependence.
1: Well, that is exactly the reading of the poem that that I would hope it would, it would lead to. So I, I'm going to give people a tiny bit of background, which is um, this poem, like like many poems uh, in American poetry these days, or a certain number of them, uh, came from an article I read in the Tuesday Science Times section um, about discovering quite recently. I think it was 2013. How protein works in the body, and so I read this, and I just immediately went, "Oh, I, I, I have to explore that," and began writing. But it changed over over time, and and moved on to the then new discovery of the microbiome, which is the you know uh, ten billion beings having enjoying their own lives inside of our bodies that are in fact creating our own lives to a great extent, our moods, our intelligence, our well-being, our exhaustion. And so, yeah, this, this poem is one of exploring, you know, uh, where does the self begin and where does the self end? And the one thing which is useful to know for getting one one line in it is uh, the the word protein comes from the Greek god Proteus, who is the god who changed shapes. And so proteins, when they are doing their work in our bodies, they do that by folding and unfolding. So kind of helps to know that. My proteins. They have discovered, they say, the protein of itch, naturetic polypeptide B, and that it travels its own distinct pathway inside my spine, as do pain, pleasure, and heat. A body, it seems, is a highway a cloverleaf crossing, well-built, well-traversed, some of me going north, some going south. Ninety percent of my cells they have discovered are not my own person. They are other beings inside me, as ninety-six percent of my life is not my life. Yet I, they say, am they, my bacteria and yeasts, my father and mother, grandparents, lovers, my drivers talking on cell phones, my subways and bridges, my thieves, my police who chase myself night and day. My proteins, apparently also me, fold the shirts. I find in this crowded metropolis a quiet corner where I build of not-me Lego blocks, a bench, pigeons, a sandwich of rye bread, mustard, and cheese. It is me and is not the hunger that makes the sandwich good. It is not me, then is the sandwich, a mystery neither of us can fold, unfold, or consume.
0: Part of what I'm so appreciating is how the weave of science um, actually deepens the experience of what is. You know, it's it's a powerful metaphor for reality, just like every other metaphor, but you uh, draw on it in an exquisite way. And I'm really curious about your involvement and how, how it came about because I'm, you know, in my life I've I've found so many so many times when I learned the science of something, it just deepens the direct the direct sense. And just I'll give one example, which is reading uh, Carlo Rovelli. So he's a quantum physicist. For those that don't know, his his way of describing physics is that you can't talk about the world and reality without talking about relationship, everything to everything. But in his personal life, this is just a story that really got me, was um, when he gets anxious before speaking in front of a group he will go outside and put his hand on a tree and he'll just leave it there for a moment and i'm imagining in the background there's some sense of communion because that's it he it drops away and then he then he goes ahead and and talks and um there's something so powerful about feeling our relatedness i don't know if you can see uh, i have a a ming aurelia back there you know before i even before we us getting together, Jane, I went and I kind of touched the leave and I say, you know, we are friends and feel, you know, we've been exchanging gases and in the field together for a long time. You know, sometimes I'll spray a little just for good measure. You
1: know? <laughs> well, I have, I've, I've never done this before, and it's a fairly recent uh, practice. I have um, this little frog. Mm. Little figure and uh the frog reminds me that I am part of the frog pond chorus. And mm-hmm. you know that we we live in a field of singing frogs and fireflies and and I don't need to worry so much because the whole chorus is taking care of things. Um so so this this was quite recent and it really changed my relationship to being nervous. Um, so I'm I'm much less nervous than I used to be once I once I remembered um the frog
0: <laughs> a beautiful story because this is what we need we we're talking about pathways of remembrance we need the particulars the particulars that kind of catapult us back into knowing that you know, we're both a wave in the ocean, we're the ocean. And, you know, if you trust you're the ocean, you're not afraid of the waves. And uh, so I'm curious, any other practices that you have that are remembrance practices that help you to remember your belonging and uh, feel that communion? So again,
1: you know, one that uh, arrived fairly recently, um, which I really love, I went, I think it might have been 2018 that I was invited to read in Australia for the first time. So I went to Sydney and Melbourne, and then a marvelous festival in the middle of the country, uh, little town Mildura. And for some reason, I was completely captured by an Australian expression which even though it's in a grammatical form that seems to point it at something, is actually just a general exclamation of happiness, which is, you beauty, you beauty. And Mm -hmm. I can't do it with an Australian accent. Sorry, I'm not much of an actor. Um, But when I came home, I suddenly took up the practice of every morning when I first come to awakening and I open my eyes Exclaiming to you know the world, the mountain if it's visible and not fogged in, the fog if that's what I see, to just have my first gesture of greeting the day be to say, "You beauty, um, oh. to the world."
0: <laughs> that's a gem. I mean, these are gems more than sometimes the most fancy concepts. Just you beauty, you know, or beauty. I yeah, know, I, I like bowing. I just find that when I bow oh, my yes. head. It, it something drops away and something opens up. And when I say thank you to whatever... Oh, yes. Oh, happens. yes. And the one that most impacted me in recent times, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who I know you know of, botanist, indigenous woman, describes uh, in the field, seeing the moose, I mean, seeing the tracks of the moose, and uh, the, the, the comment is, oh, somebody has been here yes or the bird or the squirrel or whatever the being is of oh, somebody and so now i just whatever i'm seeing a plant or you know seeing my dog or my dog is not alive anymore but picture of my dog you know that sense of the sentience really really registering the sentience of everything including the rocks and oh, the yes. really there's no way to be alone yeah there's not to feel it, it drops self-centeredness and it opens to the just the richness of it all so i'm
1: going to tell you again something i i i don't think i've mentioned this anywhere in decades um uh when i was 18 um i was uh uh, taking the psychology of dreams in college, and doing doing an experiment in the dream lab with my closest friends, um, and keeping a dream notebook. And one, you know, some dreams come sort of with gold frames around them. You know, they matter. And in a dream, I had someone who was important to me asked me the question, "Why do you write?" Mm. And what arose in my mind was an image of the rather sterile housing project that I grew up in. You know, red brick apartment buildings, chain leak fences, little tiny scraps of green, but, you know, not much life on them, Um, lots of concrete, you know, New York City. And with this image in my mind, the words that came to join it were, because everything is alive. Mm -hmm. And it actually took me some years before I realized how incongruous that marriage, you know, the way I described it, it, it's it's already integrated. But I heard the because everything is alive. And it took me years to recognize even that, you know, even these, you know, metropolitan life insurance company, you know, post-war veteran housing buildings, that too. And yes, every brick of it every every human-made erasure of the natural world that once thrived on that ground, alive, alive.
0: Oh, um, mm. You know, when we talk about this, it's so clear, non-separation. Like, it's all alive, then there's just no separation. And we know um, the deep suffering is that we've forgotten our belonging. And you have a poem uh, that just you know, as they all have, they really have caught me. It's called The Cataclysm. And I'm wondering if you might read that.
1: So this is one of the poems from uh, the book Ledger that came out in 2020. And that book, I had been writing about the crisis of climate and biosphere for a long time because, you know, you and I, 1970 was the first Earth Day. Everything we needed to know was known by 1970. Um, You know, Rachel Carson wrote about the melting of the ice caps, I think in the late 1940s. It was all there to be known, and yet everybody ignored it for so many decades. And the book Ledger, which I started writing in 2014, the earliest poem in it, is the book when these issues of biosphere and climate and extinction and toxins became really foreground. Rather than being, you know, one or two poems in a book, it became many of the poems in the book. So this is one of them, Cataclysm. It begins subtly. The maple withdraws an inch from the birch tree. The porcupine wants nothing to do with the skink. Fish unschool, sheep unflock to separately graze. Clouds, meanwhile, declare to the sky they have nothing to do with the sky, which is not visible as they are, nor knows the trick of turning into infant, tumbling pterodactyls. The turtles and moonlight, their long arrangement is over. As for the humans... Let us not speak of the humans. Let us speak of their language. The first person singular condemns the second person plural for betrayals neither has words left to name. The fed consider the hungry and stay silent. That is just a poem of undoing grief for me. Um, it isn't a portrait of repair. It is a portrait of one of the ways. In this world where everything is perfect as it is, and you can wake in the morning, and whatever you open your eyes to, you can say, you beauty, this also. You know, as you said in one of the earlier things you you chose to read, um, I always try to look at both sides Whatever it is I'm aware of, I want to ask, what else? What am I not seeing? What am I not naming? This poem is looking at all those things that when you say you beauty, you're not quite including, and it is very important to me to include my awareness of What we have done, what we are doing, what we are failing to do, and that, you know, yes, anywhere on Earth, any moment on Earth, people have been hungry. There have been cataclysms. There is no inch of this planet which is not soaked with grief and suffering. And yet, we have the capacity to do better
0: than we are. It's the poem that breaks our hearts open that allows us to avail ourselves of that capacity we have to care yeah you know i think one of my deep inquiries is what what wakes up our caring you know and i think it's when we're facing into the uh places of grief and i was very struck by the line As for the humans, let us not speak of the humans, let us speak of their language." And uh, the way you bring out how much of the very structure of our language and our brain is to perceive a self in here and an other out there, and then to have the other become unreal, which is a a word that is meaningful to me, that becomes an object. not. Feeling that subjective sentience, and that's what allows us to have somebody else be hungry and not exactly. It's real, exactly. and, and... you write so beautifully. And I've I've been reading a lot now about the the antidote, the medicine is kinship. You know, is really uh, waking up to the kinship and uh, that shift from I to we. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So. Pronouns
1: have, you know, as a writer, I've always been very interested in pronouns and following them through. And in the beginning was a young, you know, in my, in my teenage years and early 20s, almost every poem that I wrote began with the word You. And you can mean many things. You know, there are about nine meanings of it. One of them is me. You're talking to yourself. One of them is a particular person you're talking to. One of them is anyone. But my pronouns expanded. I began to sometimes say I. I began to say we. And one really early poem, I don't remember anything else from it, but I've always remembered this line. Said something to the effect of to define the meaning of we is mm. to find a life. Mm. And I've thought a great deal over the years. What, what do people mean when they say we? And I hope that my we is extending Limitlessly and boundlessly. I'm kind of willing to let it stop at the top of the atmosphere. You know, I'm willing to say, okay, this planet. I will. I'm okay with this planet being my we. Um, it doesn't have to include, you know, distant nebulae. But <laughs> short of that, um, you know, we we are living in a time when tribalism has again stepped forward, and the we and the you or the we and the they have become so contentious and so clung to and so fanned by people who feel they can increase their power by saying they um, and advocating uh, something against those they. But, you know, every one of us shares the matrilineal mitochondria of one early woman. Everyone in the world, all human beings, we are relatives, and we all, you know, share the oxygen, and we all share, you know, that that marvelous plant behind your shoulder. Um, you know, every leaf of it is giving us our lives. And it doesn't happen except through individual leaves on individual plants with their individual histories. It's collaborative. It's, you know, Lynn Margulis's Gaia hypothesis, um, seeing uh, just as we ourselves are made up of this microbiome community, so is the earth made up of us. And the whole existence of it depends on each of us, you know, fulfilling our task. And part of that task is to live and breathe and cultivate and do whatever it is we do during those lives. And part of that task is to is to die and pass the baton, um, to, to give ourselves back to the fungi, um, to give our space over to the next generation. Um, so, yeah. That, that understanding of we. But, you know, I do not want to pretend that I am not a person who if someone came charging at me with a knife or a gun, I would be terrified. You know, I, I, I've not been tested in that particular way yet in this life. But I, I do feel like we are training, as you said, every moment we are training in the saying of yes, but I suspect if someone came running at me with a knife, I might be inclined to try to run away
0: <laughs>
1: or to say something.
0: I'm out of here, you know. Yeah. I mean, look, I have been tested, and I have seen how this uh, human ego and nervous system has the flinch, quick response to defend and protect and aggress, and so that no question. And as you've been saying all along, Jean, our our task includes a remembrance of something more, just over and over again, no matter what the moment, just to pause, there's something more, there's something larger, some awareness and love that we belong to that's always and already here, and what helps us remember. And part of the remembrance, as you just pointed out, is to look bravely at the reality of, of, of the forgetting to look bravely at the ra- reality of the enormity of the suffering. And I, I think often about the, this growing science that on a heating planet, on a climate crazy planet, the heat makes people more angry and more afraid and more, and it, it brings up a more of a dividedness. It stressed us, stresses us. So we're working with um, reactive, stressed nervous systems. That are running away from presence, and the task is: can we deepen the dedication to remembrance? And yeah. um, there's a there's a poem. I'm, I know we're getting towards the end, and I wanted to make sure we had time for. And it's uh, it's been viral. It's so out there, and every time I listen to it, uh, it goes right to me. So would you be okay reading? Uh, Let them not say. Yes.
1: So Let Them Not Say is that poem that I wrote in 2014. um, It was written as a poem thinking about the crisis of the biosphere. When it was first published, it was published in a context where it did go immediately uh, viral as a political poem. Um, And so it speaks to all of these crises and it looks at our lives from the point of view of the future looking back on us and and it contemplates, you know, it, it's a poem that hopes to make itself irrelevant that you know that in 300 years if someone were to stumble across it, I, I hope they will say what was she so worried about? Turned out okay. But I think the only way it turns out okay is if we're properly worried, um, so let them not say, let them not say, we did not see it, we saw. Let them not say, we did not hear it, we heard. Let them not say, they did not taste it, we ate, we trembled. Let them not say, it was not spoken, not written, we spoke, we witnessed with voices. And hands. Let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say, as they must say something, a kerosene beauty. It burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and
0: it burned. Thank you, my friend. You know, you, you've spoken again and again about the fullness, about the different dimensions. And this is, uh, again, got that uh, the riveting sorrow and also the beauty. And so it also, there's some Hope or some trust in something good that is unfolding in the midst of even this kind of painful disease and dying on the earth, and that maybe we, I'd end by just asking you, what is it? What is it that you that reminds you, that helps you to really um, sense into that goodness? The gratitude of being alive,
1: the sense of perhaps, you know, in the best possible meaning of this, my great debt to this extraordinary existence that I am able to be part of for this brief lifetime, you know, the increasing sense of how lucky it is to breathe in this air, to see this mountain, to get to speak with you. Um, that helps. And also the feeling of, I think the great antidote to despair, maybe I'll say two great antidotes to despair. One is humility. We never know what can happen. You know, it is an absolute um, arrogance to think we know the future because anything can happen at any moment. And so a little humility before our own fears and angers and rages and self-stamping of feet, a little humility goes a long way. And then the other antidote to despair for me is any sense of agency at all. That in the moments when you think, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can do, there is always something you can do. There's a little poem somewhere in this book called Changing Everything, you know, a modest little title, Um, And it describes one day I was walking in the woods and I picked up a stick from one side of the road and moved it to the other side of the road. And, you know, that was probably shortly after I had learned uh, the scientific concept of the butterfly effect. Um, You know, change anything and you change the entire fabric and history of existence. And for me, you know, when I can do nothing, I can put two words next to each other in a way that will alter my own heart and mind from despair towards hope, from forgetting towards remembrance. And so really, it can be anything. I know times when I've been in the deepest, you know, personal uh, darkness over something, and I've realized I couldn't help myself at all I began to realize, well, then help somebody else, Mm. you know, do something for someone else if you can't do anything, and it works. So any remembrance that there is always something you can do, including the great invisible uh, actions that do change the fabric of the world, of prayer, of contemplation, of appreciation, of gratitude, we can put our gratitude and our intentions into the air as much as the plants can put their oxygen into the air, and we can put our carbon dioxide in
0: turn to give back to them. Hmm. That's a beautiful note to end on, the the humility, the agency that, allows us to continue to be part of this precious world and um I want to thank you Jane it's been just an utter delight to just to have time with you and I want to remind all those listening be asking uh, I am so so glad to have this book on um, on my shelves by my bed right here I hope you'll get it and um my friend blessings
1: Thank you enough for everything you have offered all of us for so many years and for the chance to get to know you a little bit in person to begin our friendship now. Thank you, Tara. A bow.